Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Kia and welcome to the World in Sport. I'm Vinnie Wiley. This week, there's 108 people that are supposed to board the plane, and only 21 are Solomon Islanders. The rest of them are for the game's delegations, and then the rest are like private business staff. A so-called repatriation flight from China to Solomon Islands causes controversy. New Zealand Rugby League is challenged to have more Māori and Pacifica voices in governance roles, and Oceania Football teams up with the English FA. First up, almost half the passengers on board a so-called repatriation flight from China to Solomon Islands are involved with the construction of sporting venues for the 2023 Pacific Games in Honiara. Paid for by China, the Solomon Airlines charter flight was scheduled to arrive in Honiara from Guangzhou on Wednesday evening. Despite being billed as a repatriation flight, RNZ Pacific reporter Karoy Hawkins told me there were four times more foreigners than locals on board. The interesting thing I found out yesterday, I spoke with the Prime Minister's office, uh, officials in the Prime Minister's office, and they got a, a, a rundown, a list from the um, Chinese embassy in Port Moresby because China's funding the flight. And uh, there's 108 people that are supposed to board the plane and only 21 are Solomon Islanders. The rest of them, uh, for the games delegation, so embassy officials, technical um, technical people, and uh, private contractors that are actually going to do some of the work on the building, and then the rest are like private business private business staff from different Chinese businesses in in town. So uh, they're calling it a repatriation flight, but there's only like 21 Solomon Islanders on the plane. Because yeah, that was part of the controversy. Because I guess you know repatriation, there's you can understand that you know Solomon Islanders abroad, you know. It's your home country, and, and that could be the case for New Zealand or any other country as well, that you have a right to go back to your own country, provided you stick through the quarantine rules and you can get on a plane. But um, has there been a little bit of a misleading uh, in that regard? Because 19 staff is what I was told about how many were connected to the Games. Is, is, it, is it more than that? Yeah, yeah, way more, way more. Most of the, most of the flight are, are Chinese nationals, and the majority of those Chinese nationals are people coming to, to work on the Games. Are there many people on that flight that would normally call Solomon Islands home? I'm not sure about that. Maybe with the uh, with the private, um, the employees of private companies, maybe they would live in Seoul, but they're only about 30 plus. And so Solomon Islands is fortunate in its current state to be COVID free, and there's obviously a number of parties that believe that any flight from China um, uh, is too much of a risk. Yeah, yeah. Although it's interesting that like. Australia and New Zealand both have COVID and they've had a few repatriation flights from these countries already. Um, So it's interesting that the public is up in arms about the China flight, whereas it's the same protocols, the same quarantine uh, so far have kept COVID out. So that's that's another interesting thing to look at, uh, why the the opposition to China. And also there's students in the Philippines that will be brought back. And Philippines is having a, a massive problem with COVID. So, so... Uh, it's it's interesting that the selective public <laughs> opposition to the China flight, um, uh, uh, knowing also in the background geopolitically that Solomon Islands only last year switched from Taiwan, 
diplomatically uh, with bilateral relations to China, and there was a lot of public opposition to that. So maybe a little bit of sentiment there as well. Indeed. And China, of course, is funding significant building for these Pacific Games in 2023. Clearly, that's going to be a major event in, in Honiara when, if it goes ahead. So there is obviously some pressure to get the construction phase of those the main stadium, at, um, uh, et cetera, underway. Yeah, there's nothing built yet. Um, Solomon Islands is notorious for having poor sporting facilities. Um, and uh, uh, this is a gift, is the other thing that I, I think the government might be looking at. This is China's thank you for switching diplomatic ties. They said they're going to fully fund these these venues and, and these buildings, and probably the government's like, look, we've got a gift. I don't look a gift horse in the mouth. You know, when, when they're offering, uh, maybe get them in and get the stadiums built, and we'll worry about whether the games happens or not later, because if they cancel the games now, then obviously China will say, well, if you're not having the games, then why should we build stuff? And then that legacy of having these facilities that they've wanted and craved for so long that can help their sporting teams like the Kurukuru that have excelled on the world stage but never really had facilities to match their ability, um, you know, could fall through. Um, I suppose the, the one last thing, Karoi, perhaps, uh, you know, obviously this flight has happened. It's, you know, it's gone over there. So the next step is the quarantine. So China's funding the flight, so it's not costing anything to Solomon Islands, but there is quarantine facilities um, is there confidence in Solomon Islands that those facilities are adequate and, and rigorous enough? Because there obviously have been people that have gone through them already. Yeah, so the, the, the confidence, I think, is low, um, partly partly because Solomon Islands' health health system is, is quite um, dilapidated, as they've put it. Um, it's quite weak. But also, um, as one, um, the opposition political party leader said, Australia and New Zealand have way higher uh, standards of health, stricter quarantine protocols, and COVID still got through. So they're saying, why why tempt fate? You know, why why test our uh, Solomon Islands uh, systems, which are already weak, um, when when we don't have to, is what they're saying. So they're, they're saying, why have the games? Just postpone them and don't risk it and, and just keep Solomon Islands COVID-free. That's RNZ Pacific reporter Karoi Hawkins. Former New Zealand rugby league player and administrator Tony Kemp is calling on the national body to be more representative of the community that plays the game. In an explosive open letter, Kemp detailed how he believes Māori and Pacifica people are left out of governance roles. He told RNZ sports reporter Felicity Reid the NZRL does not split its funding among those who need it the most. The letter has articulated what most of New Zealand is thinking in and around the support of the game especially for our Māori and Pacifica uh, whānau that have, I guess, delivered an experience for for their, their communities with no funding support whatsoever. So I'll, I'm making a, a statement that basically calls out the equity issue where the product is being delivered by Māori and Pacifica but the, the the funding is going directly to uh, an organisation that isn't sharing it, and, that, and I just don't think that's right. And kind of on that, you say that three percent of the New Zealand Rugby League annual budget is spent on the community game. The cash injection into the zones is less than three percent of the annual turnover, which is meant to be, I guess, helping out the rest of the game, and it's just it simply can't. Um, survive on on such little um, funding directly back into the game. So, 
what it what it isolates um, when you're looking at the annual budgets is exactly what's going back into the, the game here in New Zealand. And you'll see if you look at those budgets that the majority of the funding is spent either on salaries, directors' fees, or the international game. And what we're saying is, you know, New Zealand can't survive with that mentality. You've decided to strengthen and adapt the game, but you haven't actually brought the people that actually strengthen and adapt the game of rugby league in this country to the table. Um, and that's a that's not only a treaty issue, but it's an issue for everyone around New Zealand that delivers this game for free. And you mentioned strength and adapt. Can you tell me a little bit more about that review? Like, when did it start and do you know how it's being done? Like the letter pointed out, it's, you know, another review. That's how it's written, you know. Like, in the last 12 years, we've had the, the Anderson report, Sir John Anderson report in 2008, and the Castle report post the 2017 World Cup, which challenged the leadership um, issue within the, the National Sporting Office, driven out of Wellington by Sport New Zealand. And this is another review by Sport New Zealand to say you need to do something about your game. And I just think, you know, stop, you know, stop doing the same thing. That's why, you know, the the analogy about the asylum. You know, if you keep doing the same thing, you're going to get the same results. And and what the strengthen and adapt um, advisory group is all about. Um, should, or what sh- it should be all about is about the people in the game that are delivering it in a coalface such as the New Zealand Māori Rugby League and John Devonshire and his group and and the New Zealand Rugby League haven't even thought that that um, that out by not inc- having an inclusive approach and including them at the table you know inviting them in through the side door to a workshop is a lolly scramble you know we'll, we'll take your product off you and we'll give you nothing for it and that, that's just not right. Yeah and you say that Auckland Rugby League and the New Zealand Māori Rugby League are being ignored by New Zealand Rugby League um, how, I mean is it by not being inclusive? Oh you, you're answering the, you're answering the question the, you know, the, the telling point is that 60% of the participation rates are in Auckland with clubs and, and, and our community um, so when you look at it from a national sporting office, they're really only delivering to 40% of the rugby league community across the country, and they're doing a poor job of that. So, you know, your $7 million, when you take that into context, is quite a lot of funding. It's just where is that funding going? Because um, it certainly isn't going back into grassroots. Um, so, you know, you don't don't say you're doing this for our community and you know our community really well, because you don't. And the second second part of that conversation is when the funding comes in, it doesn't go back to where where it was where it was asked to be put. And that's again why there's been such a big uptake on the on the open letter is because the articulation of the letter has has basically um, spoken for our rugby league community. Everyone is saying, Well, we all know that this is going on, what are we gonna do about it? And do you talk about governments? Do you say that there needs to be a better understanding of who's at the table? Um, do you mean on the New Zealand Rugby League board? And who are the people that you would like to see added or removed from the board? Well, I think the first thing is the treaty needs to be um, honoured by Sport New Zealand. You know, so stop stop dishing out tokenism with regards to the treaty. You know, you've 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 pushed through a diversity uh, position onto the New Zealand board uh, without actually recognising that there should be a Maori representative first and foremost before any diversity question came up. So that's the that's the first thing. And the second thing, when you're looking at the accountability of the board. From a financial position, seven board directors and their CEO are getting more money than the gamers on a, as a whole 
been shared out in New Zealand. Now that simply tells you that there's something wrong. Um, and I just think as far as governance goes, it's a Sport New Zealand model that's basically telling um, rugby league what to do. You either do it our way or you're, it's the highway type thing. And I, and I, and I don't think the highway is a bad way to go. I, I think we, we need to take the sport back and show that rugby league people actually know what they're doing. Because what they're saying to us in layman's terms is you guys don't know what you're doing. Well, guess what? This is the uptenth uh, review that you guys have run and you guys don't know what you're doing. Well, why do you think that there's been a reluctance to be more inclusive? Well, it's casual racism, isn't it? When you look at it. Right across, right across the board. You know, they're, they're, it's, it's, it's not positioned to allow Māori or Pacifica to sit at the table and make decisions. Not only that, but they don't receive any of the funding. How can you make decisions in and around a review to say we need this this amount of funding to come back into our sport and it doesn't go back to where it's actually being um, portrayed and, and uh, to the people that are delivering on the face, on the coalface, um, day in and day out? So, you know, until, the, until they get the, the right people around the table, it is just another review, you know. Looks like Anderson, smells like Castle... It's called, it's called strength and adapt. When are we going to stop having reviews and when are we going to have the right people at the table? Because until that happens, it's just another review and guess what? We're going to have another one in a couple of years' time. That's former New Zealand rugby league player and administrator Tony Kemp speaking with RNZ sports reporter Felicity Reid. Plans are afoot to expand a football mentoring workshop to all Oceania countries. Developing Mentors is a partnership between the Oceania Football Confederation and English FA, which aims to boost skills and knowledge in leadership and mentoring. 30 participants from Tonga, Solomon Islands and Fiji are taking part in the initial pilot programme, which is being delivered online in the wake of COVID-19. OFC Head of Social Responsibility, Melissa Palombi, says the webinars are being provided free of charge. We've been discussing with the English FA for a while in terms of collaborating and engaging on some activities together. And with the pandemic, it provided us with an opportunity to take advantage of some of their e-learning components and some of their webinar series. So we thought that the Developing Mentors course would be a good place to start and see if there was an appetite within the Pacific for something like this. So this this webinar series, is, was it always sort of devised this way? It wouldn't normally be delivered in person? or So it is a workshop, I think, that they've previously done face-to-face, but um, they've adapted a lot of their educational components um, due to the pandemic to be delivered online or via webinar series. So it was an opportunity for us to help them pilot the delivery of a webinar series with the Pacific participants. And I suppose the reality of, of being a football nation in Oceania is you're often very far away from the rest of the world and certainly some of the big guns up in uh, Europe. So, uh, you know, a, a perfect format in many ways to get this sort of um, content, you know, to the Pacific where previously maybe it would be a challenge. Exactly. I, I think the pandemic has, um, has provided some opportunities that weren't necessarily available previously. And one of them is that um, people are offering training and educational opportunities online, which were previously only done face-to-face. I suppose it's uh, interesting for a lot of these Oceania countries who are, at this point, you know, touch wood, lucky enough to not have any cases of COVID-19, and football is still continuing in these countries, you know, largely without any issues. Uh, 
be, be a, bit of, a bit of a novelty to the likes of uh, England, who whilst we obviously see Premier League games not long ago and whatnot, and there is some stuff you know happening up there, it's uh, you know a very different world. It definitely is. I think we're very fortunate in the Pacific that we've only had a number of cases and that we've been able to resume a fairly normal, everyday life. So, Melissa, this uh, webinar series and this Developing Mentors workshop, uh, so, so is this just the FA offering this up out of the goodness of their hearts? Is there any sort of cost involved for OFC? Or No, it, we, we've done it through a collaborative um, partnership in terms of um, shared resources and learning, and um, it's, it's free for all of the participants that have been included in the webinar. And uh, obviously it's uh, five sessions being held over five weeks. Um, so if it's proved successful, there's a possibility that it'll be opened up to more Oceania countries? Yes. So the uh, we weren't really sure with the connectivity in terms of how successful the workshops were going to be. And um, we wanted to trial a pilot before rolling it out across all of the member associations. So the pilot is in Fiji, Tonga and um, Solomon Islands. And after that, we're hoping to be able to expand that and potentially offer um, other webinars in the same manner. In terms of the inaugural participants, how were they selected or chosen? So basically, we, we sent invitations through to our social responsibility and just play program managers at the member associations. And we asked them to... Um, sign anybody up who was interested in taking part in the webinar series. So a lot of it includes just play program staff, coaches, some referees, some goalkeeping development officers, as well as some of the technical staff at the member association. Okay, so we, you know, we often think, you know, football, you think players, you think coaches, and, and obviously you need officials, but this is, you know, the, the sort of skills and uh, I guess um, things that are being uh, taught through this program or, um, you know, discussed um, are quite uh, flexible. You know, they, you know, it's not just purely for a coaching thing or thing. It's just sort of skills, mentoring and leadership that can be sort of applied in, in various fields. Yes. So it's, it's basically building individual leadership skills and, and helping people to understand how to be a good leader and to provide them with um, other opportunities to be able to practice that. And so it's really relevant to anybody within the member association in football. You mentioned sort of part of the FA's webinar series. So was there different workshops, different uh, topics that maybe could be uh, rolled out in the future as well? This could be the the start of uh, more regular collaboration? Yes, we definitely hope so. They have a series of um, different uh, workshops that they are able to deliver. And so we we picked this one to begin with, and so hopefully we'll be able to roll out some of the other ones in the future. That's Oceania Football's Head of Social Responsibility, Melissa Palombi. And that's the World in Sport for this week. I'm Vinnie Wiley. As always, thank you very much for listening. For more, head to rnzi.com.